Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcasts 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Rebecca Mashaw, with Gastroenterology Consultant. Today, we're here with Dr. Verinda Bardouage. She's the director of the Eosinophilic Gastrointestinal Disorders Program and the director of endoscopy services at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She's going to talk to us today about some recent research that she and her colleagues published on the use of elemental and elimination diets in treating eosinophilic gastrointestinal diseases. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Bardouage. In your published review, you state that elemental and elimination diets are highly effective therapies for treating eosinophilic gastrointestinal diseases. Would you begin by explaining the features of these diets and how they are administered and followed? Absolutely. Um, Rebecca, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you and talking about the research we've done here at Children's LA. Um, The paper that we are describing today and discussing is a collaborative work that I've done with the uh, allergy team and the dietitian uh, team at Children's LA. So uh, we want to talk about uh, what are the features of these diets and how do they get administered and how the patients are followed. And I would like to first uh, mention that the crucial factor of picking what diet you will give to a patient has to be acceptable to the patient. So let's first start about elemental diet. Uh, This involves drinking or intaking absolutely broken down formulae. If you consider a regular formula like a house, this is one brick and it runs through the GI tract, is shown to cause remission in this condition and also allow the child to get the nutrition that is necessary. Uh, Data, depending on what you're looking at, can show uh, up to 90% remission in disease. And this is a great choice in younger children uh, because they are already consuming formulae or breast milk. So it's really not much difference for them to get onto a broken down formula. Having said that, the more simpler ingredients we go on a formula, it loses its taste, flavor, and palatability can be a challenge. Occasionally, children require a feeding tube to be able to get this formulae. The next diet we're going to talk about is the elimination diet, which looking at the data can show a 70 to 80% remission rate. And the premise of this diet is that certain foods are considered to be triggers in the EGID population. And by EGID is just the short term that I'm going to use for eosinophilic GI, uh, gastrointestinal diseases for the rest of our discussion. Um, So what we do with this diet is uh, we start removing from the diet certain culprit or trigger agents which are dietary in nature, and we can achieve remission in a proportion of these patients. So this diet can range from six food elimination to four food elimination to now some data supporting even one food elimination. And these are popularly called S-fed, S-fed, or O-fed. And S-fed, I would like to mention, it's milk, soy, fish, nuts, wheat, and eggs that are removed. And classically, endoscopies are performed when the elimination happens or reintroduction happens, and we see what could be identified as a trigger agent. And in some children, we're able to find it, and this diet works best for them because you can narrow it down to the trigger. And for some, it doesn't. And uh, at times, you keep them on the S-fed and uh, stay with the remission. 
thanks for that great overview of these diets. Now, can you give us an overview of these diseases? Are they common in children, or do they also occur in adults? And what kinds of symptoms do these patients present with? So that's a great question to discuss. Um, these conditions are uh, marked by an increase in cells called eosinophils, a marker of allergies and eosinophilic disease. And they can be innocent bystanders too. So what I mean by that is that this condition is a clinical pathologic diagnosis. What that means is you have to have the clinical features and they should correlate with what you're finding on the endoscopy and getting mucosal biopsies from. In a simpler term, I would segregate this um, entity in terms like EOE or eosinophilic esophagitis, which tends to affect the esophagus and non-EOE EGID, where you can have distal disease in the GI tract, starting anywhere from gastritis, duodenitis, uh, enteritis, to colitis, and a combination of these. And this distinction is important because the response to therapy changes and the behavior of these uh, conditions change. Classic symptoms that we can see with EOE also differ in what age range your patient is. It can start from just vomiting, to growth failure uh, in about uh, the age range of uh, elementary to early high school children, we can notice dysphagia, which is painless typically and a sensation that kids say that I feel like a rock or a lump in my throat. I tend to cut up my food, I eat like a bird, and I need water sometimes to slip food down. So those are classic features. And with the EGID, which is non-EOE EGID, where there is distal gastrointestinal involvement, those tend to typically present more with abdominal pain, diarrhea, occasionally rectal bleeding, and also growth failure. Um, so these are subtle features, and we're trying to understand, is it that these are getting recognized more, or is it truly that the incidence is going up? So that's a little bit unclear. Um, because it is comparatively a newer diagnosis, which we've seen within the last decade, and it has really grown because there is some understanding of how to, uh, you know, uh, select these patients out and how to work these patients. Um, and you mentioned a little bit about uh, how do we see it in adults. So uh, to be very honest, I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, so not going to dwell into the details of adults because not an expert in that. Having said that, those patients tend to present with similar symptoms of abdominal pain and diarrhea that we talked about, and um, the dysphagia, which is feeling of uh, food getting stuck in the throat, tends to come more from stricturing disease, which is uh, long-standing inflammation causing narrowing of the food pipe, or maybe just a phenotype of the disease in which there is less inflammation and more stenosis and narrowing. In your review, you noted that standardization in the reintroduction phase of these diets is lacking. How does your research shed light on this issue, and what do you think contributes to the lack of standardization of care? Standardization is very patient-dependent, and there are several factors which determine how this standardization um, can be achieved and how reintroduction can be performed safely and with a team approach. So first and foremost, I would like to talk about concomitant allergies. Eosinophilic esophagitis can be very loosely called uh, asthma or eczema of the food pipe. 
much of these kids tend to have concomitant IgE food related or environmental allergies. So just to give you an example, if you want to introduce milk back into the diet and the child has an IgE mediated allergy, then that might not be the best agent to go back into the diet. Because even if it is not the trigger for EGID, it is a true IgE mediated allergy and will limit tolerance. The second feature is that these diets can be very restrictive for patients. And there may be a desire for a certain food to be reintroduced into the diet first, which may drive the reintroduction process. So again, it is very patient selective. And thirdly, I would say that you really need support from a dietitian or a nutritionist uh, because you need constant communication with the family and learning that if you want to exclude milk, what all are the sources in which you can get milk. And uh, not all institutions or practices have this support. So that limits the standardization because you got MDs working with the busy setup and they really might not have the expertise or uh, the time to allow the standardization in, re in reintroduction to happen. You and your colleagues pointed out in your review that individualization according to patient preferences is very important to the patient's quality of life and age-related issues also have to be considered in food reintroduction. How would you advise clinicians who are trying to balance the need for individualization and the goal of achieving some sort of standardization in this phase of treatment? I think my and my colleagues' advice would be to balance the specifics of reintroduction and handle those best with a very candid conversation with the families ahead of time set realistic goals from the get-go. And that allows you to have more streamlined management further down and understand things that we've just talked about, which are IgE-mediated allergies, if they have any, if there is a preferential desire to bring in a certain food early on. We tend to really include the wishes of the patient. And I think that team approach and, again, having a dietitian really helped, have helped us achieve the goals. Um, and this approach really can do wonders. What kind of best practices did you identify for food reintroduction when patients have achieved remission? So again, goal setting, uh, having a team approach, real support and communication during this process from the EGIT team, especially having a nutritionist and a dietitian and continued GI support. Um, one thing one has to keep in mind when there is reintroduction happening of food agents is a planned endoscopic evaluation to assess if there is mucosal remission which is achieved. Because if you do that, you know that you have safely been able to reintroduce that food agent, and that's a safe agent. It really guides further liberalization of the diet and helps identify culprit food triggers which you may or may not find in a particular child. But I think that systematic approach does help. And endoscopic evaluations, uh, you know, if uh, one is uh, performing transnasal endoscopy, it's an unsedated uh, sort of evaluation. Uh, but traditionally, all sedated endoscopies um, uh, can be seen as a burden on families. And, uh, you know, there are uh, concerns related to repeated exposure of anesthetic agents. So having that conversation from the get-go, uh, I think, really helps out. What's the next step in your research into this topic? Yeah, we're really excited to move forward with this uh, protocol and utilizing it in a larger cohort. 
And that's our really our next step. So I think having this protocol and uh, taking a standardized approach will allow us to get more data and do further meaningful research. Thanks so much for talking with us today, and we'll look forward to hearing about your continuing research. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.